My name is John. If you cannot see me, I'm sorry. I am short. That's just my shoulder is doing well. Thank you. I'm about 10 weeks out uh, of a shoulder surgery. And uh, okay, everybody, check this out. I can lift my arm. It's been so slow. Hey, I want to ask prayer from you guys for something. Uh, Jim and I are going to a pastor's conference this next week in a um, state that shall not be named. We will be landing in Detroit, and um, I just can't say that word. Um, and we're going to actually be spending the week with a bunch of pastors that we've known for our whole lives. And... This is a group of men and women that, since they came to know Jesus personally, they've just invested their life in caring for people. And so the reason I want to ask for prayer is that this week can be for us a very envisioning, empowering time. And so would you guys pray for us as we're there? I would really, I see a few nods. Would you pray for us this week? Thank you, thank you. I want to begin this morning with a question. I want you to think about this question. I want you to pause and let these words sink in. What are you expecting? What are you expecting God to do in and through and for you? If we could somehow measure the metrics of your heart... To what degree would you, your heart be filled with anticipation or would you instead be thinking in all honesty before God, today will probably be like yesterday and like the day before? The reason I ask that is because faith is like a roller coaster. And there are times when we're at the top, like last week with our Easter celebration, and it was so awesome, and we were so excited. But the roller coaster comes down. And a lot of times, in my experience, when we're in the down part of our roller coaster of faith, we make decisions about what God is going to do based on our experience rather than on who he is. Because... I didn't see a miracle in my life yesterday. Things are just going to be what they were. And instead of having this great anticipation that God is moving amongst us and in us and through us, this great sense of anticipation and hope becomes beaten down by the cares of this life. The reason this is important is because of what we're going to talk about today. Over the past few weeks, we've had some, I don't know if I would call them epic sermons, but they are certainly epic material. Two weeks ago, we talked about the atonement. We talked about this moment when Jesus was crucified and God was reconciled to the world and God somehow took on his back all the sins that we had committed and said, it is finished. That's epic, right? That's epic. And then last week, we celebrated this resurrection from the tomb, this mighty event when Jesus rose again from the dead, 
to declare his victory over our sin and over death itself. And we celebrate, right? Was last week awesome or what? It was. But our salvation has three acts. The atonement, the resurrection, and the ascension to the Father. The ascension of Jesus. And most of us here, I think, have a really thin theology of the ascension. It's like, Jesus died for me, and that's significant. Jesus rose again from the dead, and that's significant. Jesus went to the Father. I'm sure that that is important in some way, shape, or form, but we're not exactly clear as to why that is. You know, we can tell that in the creed. In the creed, the early believers thought differently than we do. I believe in God, the Father, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was dead and buried. The creed continues, and it says, On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. There's something significant that happened in the ascension of Jesus. Do you see what the early Christians believed? There's something big going on here. When do we celebrate Jesus' birth? Christmas, December 25th. When do we celebrate his resurrection from the dead? Easter. When do we celebrate the ascension? Yeah, we're not so sure, are we? Thank you. It's like, I, I don't know. I guess today. No, it's actually 40 days after the resurrection was the ascension of the Father. And the fact that we don't know the answer to that question is revealing, isn't it? Doesn't it show the thinness of our theology? We don't quite get it. There's something significant here that we haven't laid hold of. Uh, last week we celebrated, I, I want to take a few minutes and, and, and say where we're going as a church. Last week we celebrated the baptism of Hillary Dunn and John Kurtz. I asked John if I could fill in some of the blank space on his story and he said yes. John shared his testimony and he gave a lot of praise to me and Caleb for walking beside him. Actually we did very little. What is very cool is that John hated God because of a misunderstanding of Genesis 22, where God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, but God was setting Abraham up to show Abraham that God himself in that same place would offer up his son Jesus as the reality that that scene foreshadowed. And John told us, he sent me a text actually, and the text said, when we meet tomorrow, I'm bringing my Bible, and I'd like to preach at you and show you the peace I have about a verse that made me hate God. Now, John, at this point, was not a Christian. When you get a text like that, your interest is piqued, isn't it? Hmm, what is going on? We met with John. He opened up Genesis 22. And he spent the next 20 to 30 minutes teaching this beautiful sermon about what God had revealed to him about the goodness of God. And Caleb and I looked at one another. It's like, yeah, we really didn't do much here, did we? God met John himself. 
I want to share some statistics with you and tie together what I mean here. This is from Barna. And Barna has said that 95% of Christians would say that part of their faith means being a witness about Jesus. 95%, that's pretty cool, right? Most of us get that we're supposed to tell others about our faith. 94% say that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus. We know our friends. We want our friends to have what we have. That's beautiful that 94% of us get that. Next statistic. Millennials that feel equipped to share their faith with others is 73% that I know how to answer people's questions. That's still pretty good. Now look at this, 47%. Millennials that agree that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Only half of younger Christians today understand our mission and calling an invitation and adventure is to share the good news of Jesus with those who are around us. So as a church, what we are going to do when we finish this series next week, we're going to begin a new series that's going to last seven weeks long. It's called Unashamed. We are going to face this fear that we have. We are going to face this cowardice we have. We are going to face this wrong idea that we need to keep our faith to ourselves for seven weeks. We are going to invite all of us to live unashamed. And the reason why is because Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. He has ascended to the Father, and he is moving in our world today. And that's what I want to talk about. What I'd like to do in this sermon is I want to walk through nine post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And then we're going to end at the ascension and we're going to talk about why is the ascension of Jesus so important to us. Okay? Here's the first resurrection appearance. It's to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is the first witness to the resurrection. Can someone tell me why that, that is significant? Because she's a woman. Because in that culture, a woman was not regarded as credible to even testify in court. And Jesus, of all the people he could choose to reveal himself to after the resurrection, he chose a woman. He crossed all kinds of cultural boundaries and began undoing the chauvinism that had dominated the world up to that point. We turn to the gospel to read this account. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. That's kind of funny to me. I'm not even sure why. I mean, like, I don't know if she, did she think Jesus was holding a rake or what? I don't know, but she, at this point, she's confused. She thought that maybe Jesus' body had been stolen. Jesus said to her, Mary. I just think that's so cool that he calls her by name, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father to my God and to your God. And do you see what Jesus says here? He says, look, I have an appointment. I've got something really important that I need to do. It's like she's clinging. It's like, let go. I need to return to the Father. 
on Jesus' mind is a meeting that's coming for him. And so he says, let me go. That's the first resurrection appearance. Here's the next two. Resurrection appearance number two is the Simon Peter. It's not recorded in the scripture. I think it was so sacred for Peter, he didn't want to put on paper how powerful it was for him, a man who had denied, <clears throat> who had denied that he even knew Jesus, who knows how sacred that encounter was. The third is uh, an appearance to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. One of them, one of them is named Cleopas, uh, whom is not found anywhere else in Scripture, as I recall, and the other one is not even named. So we pick up our story on Resurrection Sunday on the road to Emmaus. Jesus encounters two disciples in the afternoon, and he comes up to them and says, hey, what are you talking about? And they begin to say, well, we're really sad and disappointed because we thought Jesus was the Messiah. And then Jesus interrupts the conversation to say this. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And he's saying, listen, the Bible was saying what was going to happen the whole time. We should have seen this coming. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that is, the book of Genesis, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, he said the promise that God made of a descendant that would crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3, that's me the lamb that's going to be offered for the sins of the world in Genesis 22. That's me. And he walks them through the whole Bible saying, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. The whole Bible, including the Old Testament, is about what? Jesus. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going to go further. Verse 29. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized them. Now, let's just sit in this for just a minute. The resurrected Jesus is now in a glorified, immortal, never-to-die-again body. He looks the same, but he looks different. He has power that he did not have as a, in a mortal body body, but he conquered death, and he is now in a glorified body, and he vanished from their sight. It's not like Jesus went, boom, he just disappeared. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while they talked to us on the road, while they opened to us the scriptures? I love that verse. Doesn't your heart burn when someone unfolds the scripture? And you see the story that you're in, this story of a broken world and a loving God who has intervened and invited us into this adventure. That's what the disciples felt. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So the background music of this, Mary Magdalene saw Jesus Simon saw Jesus, told the other disciples, and they're like, we're not buying this. 
And it's not until the two disciples on the road to Emmaus say, we saw Jesus too, so we know that he really appeared to Simon. Are you tracking with me? Okay, next resurrection appearance. After this, Jesus will show up and reveal himself to the disciples without Thomas, and then he will show up again with Thomas present. Let's look at that. On the evening of that day, Resurrection Sunday, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So he did not knock on the door and say, hey, it's me. The doors were locked and he just appeared. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Let's just Remember that he bears in his glorified body the scars of his crucifixion. When we get to see Jesus someday, we will see the scars in his body. Verse 21, Jesus again said to them, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Read that again. As the Father has sent me to take on human skin and enter into a lost world to seek and to save that which was lost, so I send you. Imagine the weight of that. Imagine if Jesus pulled you aside and spoke to you personally. And he said, I have a mission for you. And he put his hand on your shoulder and he said, I'm sending you. This is why we're doing Unashamed starting in two weeks. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, they all had nicknames. I, I really wish the scripture included all the rest of the nicknames because Jesus gave the disciples nickname, nicknames and he was called the twin, which was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Some people, this is where he gained the epitaph, doubting Thomas. He was no doubter. He went to India with the gospel and died as a martyr. Later, he was an amazing man of incredible courage, but he wanted to follow truth. Eight days later, just imagine being the one person that wasn't at the party. And the other disciples are like, woo, this is great. We saw the Lord. And Thomas is like, what is wrong with me? Why did I get left out? I mean, those eight days must have been miserable for him. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, I just want you to imagine this in your mind. Jesus turns to you. You doubted or you were hesitant, and he said, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I mean, he's so gentle. Do you see that? I want to meet you where you're at. You're, you're struggling. I want to meet you in that struggle. He's so gentle. And notice Thomas's answer. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my what? God. Thomas is thinking through this. It's like, wait a minute. 
if Jesus really did rise from the dead and the disciples have seen him, then I know what that means, that the one I've been following for three and a half years is God incarnate. And when he saw the resurrected Jesus, is like my Lord and my God. Jesus said to them, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are us who live our, our lives by faith, saying we believe this message. All right, let's go back to this list. We have Mary Magdalene, Simon Peter, Cleopas, and an unnamed disciple, the apostles without Thomas, and the apostles with Thomas. Then we're going to have a crowd of 500 in Galilee. The scripture does not say when this happens. It's probably Matthew 28. Don't worry about that. Then he appears to James, his brother, then the apostles again, and then finally to Paul. We pick this up in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is writing, and he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Simon Peter, then to the twelve, then to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, that is, they've died. You know why that's significant? The way Paul is writing, he's saying, listen, if you don't believe in the resurrection, just go ask somebody. There's plenty of people still alive who saw Jesus. Then he appeared to James. Do you know why that's significant? Do you know who James is? Jesus' brother who doubted him, who thought that he was insane. The Gospels record that at one point his family came to collect him. And Je I mean, how hard would it be to convince your brother that you're God, right? I mean, <laughs> if there's anyone that's going to be skeptical, James became the number one leader of the church until he was put to death. Because after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to him. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. When they come together. All right, I'm fast forwarding. So those are the resurrection appearances. There's one more to get to. And this is when Jesus ascends to the Father and is found in Acts chapter 1. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I want you to notice Jesus' answer. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, I'm not going to answer your question, is what he is really saying. I'm not even going to bother to answer that. Verse 8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon me, upon you, and you will be my witnesses. What does a witness do? They just testify. Do they need to know everything? No. They just need, need to be able to say, like I can say, look, when I was 17, I was lost. And someone explained the Jesus stuff to me, and it made sense. And I committed myself to Jesus, and I can't explain it but I was changed. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up in a cloud, took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come into the same will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, I don't know what you feel about this, this scene, the ascension. Uh, Rembrandt made a painting that I want to share with you about it. 
And um, I looked at this, and I, I thought it, it, it looks like a fairy tale to me. Let, me. let me zero in on the lower half of the painting with the little baby cherub angel things. This is like total fabrication. Like, one theologian said that the ascension is, quote, an embarrassment. If you follow his logic, what he's saying is, surely Jesus was not lifted up in a cloud. That's a myth. And I think when I imagine the atonement that God somehow paid for my sins when I was his enemy, when I think about a dead body coming to life, I really don't struggle with the ascension very much at all. And the whole idea of the clouds, it's meant to convey, this is like otherworldly. Like this is meant to be this powerful experience. So what do we get? What do we take away from the ascension? I think there's three things. Here's the first. Jesus' ascension. The ascension is Jesus' homecoming to the Father. Jesus had said this in the Gospel of John. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Pretty simple and clear, right? I don't know how close you are with your family, but for us, when we have a homecoming, it's like we can't wait for the kids to arrive. We're those cheesy parents that when our kids leave again, we walk outside and we stand on the street and we're just waving. Like a homecoming for us, for our kids, it's like a really big deal. Have you ever seen the homecoming of a soldier? It's his little boy or little girl. Oh my goodness. It rips your heart out. Imagine God the Father watching his son get his beard ripped out to be spat upon, to be mocked, to be crowned with a crown of thorns. Can you imagine the father's disdain? And then to see his son suffer for us and to utter those beautiful words, it's finished. Can you imagine the homecoming of the father to the son Jesus Christ. The ascension is first and foremost about Jesus coming back to the Father. Secondly, the ascension is the coronation of the King. This whole imagery of clouds and majesty is because that's the way they rolled in ancient times. A king would enter into a crowded room that was filled to behold this spectacle and the king would slowly walk up to the throne. And then he would sit upon his throne and everybody would applaud. The reign has begun. And that is what is meant. That is the pivotal thing about the coronation. The ascension is the coronation of the king. Jesus said this in Matthew 28. Jesus said, came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the king. Third thing and final thing. The ascension 
inaugurates Christ's kingdom. Now that the king is seated on his throne, any human being can come to trust him as Lord and Savior and be born again and be changed. And men and women, we are sent with the greatest news the planet has ever heard. Let us not be ashamed. This claim that Jesus sits on the throne, it's outrageous, isn't it? I mean, think about the world we live in. Turn on CNN, open up the, your app, and read what's happened, the latest bombing, the latest shooting, the latest perversion, the latest horrific killing of a child by its parent. The world is so messed up. How can Jesus possibly be on the throne? Because he's ruling through his people. His kingdom is advancing all over this world. Thousands and hundreds of thousands are coming, of people are coming to believe in Jesus. His kingdom is advancing through all the strife of this world. It is an outrageous claim, but it's transformative. Let's go back to that question, that opening question. What do you think your expectation would be like if you believed here today that Jesus sits on the throne? What expectation might be built in you? Who knows what God is going to do in me? through me, for me, and through us, because he sits on the throne. I'd like you to stand with me, and I want to read the creed together before we move into worship. You all ready? All right. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Lord, we lift our hearts that are full of worry and pressure and care and hurts and wounds and struggles to the throne of a conquering Lord, a conquering victorious King. We know and expect trials and hardships to continue to come every day of our lives. But we choose by faith to believe that we do not live in a random world. The throne is purposeful, meaningful, powerful. We lift our eyes and we worship you, Christ the King.